verse 1. Then spake Elijah unto the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou into thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose, and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household, and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry to the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha has done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elijah restored to life. And the king asked the woman, and she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land even until now. Second Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Elijah told the Shunammite woman, apparently now a widow, to leave Israel because of the forthcoming famine. There could have been other political reasons for this council, but a judgment was clearly coming in the form of a famine of seven years. We need not assume, as so many scholars do, that the number of seven is symbolic and not literal. The land was to have a Sabbath rest every seventh year. Israel had not kept the law. Hence, a seven-year famine was the reminder of God's law and the reason for the judgment. Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7 and 20 through 22, etc. The woman obeyed Elisha and went to Philistia for the duration. This is paradoxical because normally Philistia was a drier area. At the end of the drought, the woman returned to Israel only to find that others had occupied her house and were using her land. Because of the drought and the grazing was poor and limited and outsiders had taken over her land to get all possible benefits from the additional acreage unable to dispossess them by means of local courts. She went to Samaria to appeal to the king. The gates of the city with those days were both a marketplace and a court. There the king sat to hear appeals. He had asked Gehazi, the former now leprous servant of Elisha, to give him a report on Elisha's miracles. Elisha was currently not available or in hiding. To ask about Elisha was, in effect, to ask for a miracle in the time of judgment. In the king's mind, there was this question. What has Elijah done in the past 
What can he do now? So Elisha, we remember, was Elijah's chosen successor. It was Elijah who had called down a most fearful drought on Israel. Had Elisha invoked this one? How should Elisha be dealt with? Gehazi told the king of the restoration of life to the dead son of the woman of Shunem. At that moment, the widow appeared before the king. Gehazi, as a leper, stood further out and was thus in a position to spot her and said, quote, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elijah restored to life. End quote. The king at once appointed an officer to take charge of the restoration of the widow's land to her with full restitution. Two things are immediately noticeable. First, the king is eager to help a widow who is a closer friend of Elijah. There is no investigation. He is sure the widow is in the right. The widow's absence at Elijah's counsel points to at least Elijah's foreknowledge of the drought. The king has no desire to offend Elisha or the widow. In fact, he is eager to please them. Second, we are not given the king's name. Although scholars have made it clear that there are two possible monarchs whose dates make tenable their part in this episode, whichever the two it was, the more important fact is that he was deliberately left nameless. Of this king, it can be said that he was a better man than Ahab, which is not saying much. More important, he was not as significant a ruler as Ahab. We readily remember the Roman emperors before and after Nero, however evil they were. Rome, then, still had a future. Although by the end of the first century, Rome was moving into an economic decline from which she never recovered. It is difficult for us to remember, however, more than one, at most, of the last four or five emperors before Rome fell to the barbarians. They may have been better men than Nero and Caligula, for example, but they were irrelevant men. After Ahab, the kings of Israel were irrelevant men. They did not so appear in their day, and somewhat later, Jeroboam II established Israel in what seemed to be her greatest glory. It was, all the same, a superficial and decadent power, and Scripture gives it only brief attention. Jeroboam II, 787 to 747 B.C., the 14th king of Israel, added to the territories of the realm, he was popular. His reign was one marked by superficial wealth, and art flourished. Within a few years after his death, Israel was conquered and destroyed. In Scripture, Jeroboam does not gain either attention or the approval which was his in the day. 2 Kings, chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Chapter 14, 23 through 28. Hosea 1, verses 1 and 2, chapter 4, 12 through 14, 
chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, and 5 through 7. Amos, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and 13. Chapter 2, 1 through 3. Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 9. And verse 13, and verse 17. The fortifications for Samaria and Jeroboam II built were as much as 33 feet wide. It took the Assyrians three years to seize the city, 2 Kings 17, verse 5. But for his time and for his people and for the other nations of this day, Jeroboam II was seen as Israel's greatest monarch. But in Scripture, he receives attention on a scant level when compared to Ahab. The Bible depicts Jeroboam II at the end of the road for Israel. We hear of him, then of his miserable successors, only as harbingers of the last days of Israel in the final phase of God's judgment. There is, thus, no mention of a specific king in these verses. He is inadequate and irrelevant. There are improvements in Israel, but no true reformation. Israel's future has become death and the prophets minister to a remnant.